Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. It's so easy to forget that gifted kids are kids, right? We treat them like little adults, like little senators. And it's just like, hold on a second, right? I mean, this is a thing that, you know, parents will say to me, like, well, you know, they have to go from school to ballet to karate to Latin class, and then they have to do their homework. I'm like, if we don't give kids time to be kids, they grow up to be adults who don't know how to regulate. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of listening to a conversation with me and Dr. Matt. You may have seen Dr. Matt on all the socials or if you've seen him in keynotes around the country. Um, He is a colleague I have recently um, come into contact with that we really have, I think, a lot in common. And so we are going to be talking about mental health and our neurodivergent kids today and um, probably lots of tangential (laughs) topics around that. But let's dive in. So, Dr. Matt, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's funny. We did connect relatively recently, but I kind of feel like I've known you forever. It was like that brain synchronicity thing going on. Absolutely. Let me give you a little background. Um, Dr. Matt is a high-energy creative clinician who utilizes an eclectic approach to meet the specific needs of his clients. Dr. Matt thrives in supporting young people and understanding, developing, and celebrating their unique brains, same, um, while developing strengths-based ways of operating in their world. He's best known for his work with gifted individuals as an advocate for using accessible understanding of neurodivergent needs to implement high-level support. So he is the founder and lead psychologist of the Neurodiversity Collective, which has been a longtime dream of him as a grown-up gifted kid. So under Dr. Matt's leadership, the Neurodiversity Collective proudly holds itself out as a group of informed, compassionate, and skilled specialists prepared to serve unique needs. So Dr. Matt's also a keynote speaker and thought leader in the area of twice exceptional learners. So welcome. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. I mean, let's do it. So let's start with how do you define neurodivergent? I mean, that is, that's the best question to open with, right? Because like, let's set the shared terms. So, you know, I like to think of neurodivergence in terms of the normal curve, because while I'm not a math guy, I am a stats guy. I like stats. You know, so I think about that normal curve where there's like, you know, 68% of people right there in that big old middle, right? And the world is built for those people, which makes logical sense, right? I mean, that's, you know, most of them are there. Let's put most of the resources there. So we can safely call those people neurotypical. But when you get out to the edges, when things get a little bit wilder, right, 
that's when you start to get in neurodivergence, right? People who have divergent or different brains, you know, and I think, I think a lot of people out there, when they hear neurodivergent, they sort of default to something like autistic, which, and listen, autism is part of neurodivergence, but it's really anybody with a different brain. And I love this term and I use it a lot because, I mean, growing up, we were just talking about, you know, 90s kids who are now growing, growing up and, you know, with their own children. But I remember in the 90s, like ADHD and stuff like that, it was really seen as like a personality flaw, right? Mm -hmm. It was a reflection of parenting. It was like, if you could just, but now that we understand so much more about the brain and how it impacts development and how it impacts how we show up in the world, you know, we can loop more of these things under this umbrella of neurodivergence, where it's like, this isn't a kid who chose to be defiant or twitchy or, or hyperactive. This is a kid who has a literally a different brain. And those differences are, are manifesting in ways that are atypical for what we expect. Exactly. And so tell me more about what led you to the work you do today. I know we all kind of know from if anyone's following you online, you were a kid growing up in the 90s. And as a gifted kid, I'm just so curious to hear more about what you got as support, maybe what you didn't get that's led you to where you are. I mean, yes, I was, I, I, I often say that, like, who is more privileged than me? I mean, both of my parents are clinical psychologists, right? So, I mean, I grew up with people who literally knew what to look for. Small town with good schools, right? So I was identified in second grade, like many of us are, you know, and and yet my town, for all of its resources, never really figured out a consistent, stable, gifted program. It was very much this sort of like, if they got a thing they could do, they would pull us all out of class and send us to the thing. So it was a couple times a year, they would throw us on a bus and send us to Rutgers University and we would do a thing, you know, and, and I really enjoyed those things. I looked forward to them, but my parents were very active in getting me that rich enrichment outside of school, you know, so, you know, camps and sports and you know, drawing classes and stuff like that. Really the things that sort of kept my fires lit. Yeah. And those are the things that related to your mental wellness, I'm sure. That back, you know, in the 90s, I'm, I'm assuming your parents kind of knew like interests should connect with happiness and mental wellness. But one thing I think probably my listeners are wondering, because I get this question a lot, is why do we need to worry about these gifted kids? Aren't they doing fine? Aren't they like, you know, like, is there, isn't everything like better with them? So I want to dive into, before we get into talking about all the different types of neurodivergent, while we're on this idea of, you know, leaning into your strengths worked for you, but I know as a child psychologist that helped your mental wellness, but why is that important for gifted kids. Yeah. Oh, that is, oh, see this, you, you asked the best questions. I mean, this is <laughs> top-notch stuff. I hope CNN hears this and you can have a show <laughs> and then I can be on that show. Same. I will just Same, I will Dr. follow ben. your coattails anywhere, Dr. Emily, and that will be glorious. <laughs> One of the brain differences that's really relevant with gifted kids, right, is the limbic system. So the system of structures in our brain that makes us experience emotions. It is more interconnected and in some ways it's actually larger. It's, it's got more emotional potential. So gifted kids feel their feelings more. You know, I mean, we always talk about in psychology, right? What I call the big three, frequency, intensity, and duration. So gifted kids have more feelings more often for longer periods of time. And so we need to help our kids understand those emotions and give them the tools to manage them. Because otherwise, it's not just, oh, the, the occasional rainstorm, it's frequent daily thunderstorms, right? And it's, mm -hmm. it can wear our kids down, right? We need to give them the tools, you know, to further the, 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 further the metaphor, the rain jacket, right? The galoshes, mm -hmm. right? Teach them how to stay inside sometimes, right? Those are the things we need to do. And with this prevailing idea that gifted kids will be just fine on their own, which I still hear today in 2020, yep. right? You know, you're, that's why I always start my conversations with giftedness as neurodivergence, because I think it can help adults understand that this isn't a kid 
who just will read books all day and be fine. This is a kid with literally a different brain and that different brain has different needs. So let's connect it there, right? Yep. And so I think too of um, that curve you mentioned, you know, the curve we're talking about everybody is just this, you know, statistical normal distribution of statistically the population's intelligence falls in the middle, but our world is built for the middle. And so, yes, there are strengths in there that a child that's gifted does not need extra support with compared to peers, but it's lonely at the edges of the curve. So what we're going to dive in today is more around that loneliness and that mental health that needs to be supported when you're outside of the majority on either side. And then layered on top of that is often our kids have asynchronous skill, skills. So they're in the middle with one thing and an outlier with something else. So that's where it gets really tricky. So um, let's let's talk about what are the most common mental health needs you see in your work with neurodivergent kids. And I'm sure you'll have to specify like this kind of this type of brain that we can't clump, of course, all these neurodivergent kids together because every single one is different. I think that the, the, the things I see most are ADHD-like symptoms. So what we would call executive dysfunction. Right. Mm -hmm. They're one of the differences in the gifted brain is a weaker prefrontal cortex that's going to look a lot like ADHD. Mm -hmm. Kids can have ADHD. I know because I'm one of them. Right. But, you know, just there's structures and weaknesses within the gifted brain that are going to just have kids be a little bit more scatterbrained, a little bit weaker time management. This is where the idea of the absent minded professor comes from. Mm -hmm. It's just a weaker prefrontal cortex. Second thing is our good friend existential depression. Not just regular depression. Oh, no, no. But like, where do I fit in the broad scheme of the universe? Go ahead and answer that Mm -hmm. 45-minute session, if you would. Good time. Tell me more, though. What do you mean by that? So the gifted brain is drawn to these big questions, right? These ideas of like, what is life? What is meaning? What is my purpose? What are my values? And if we don't give kids space and time to explore those things and seek things that answer those questions, we're asking them to sit on these unanswered questions that can be really quite painful, you know, and it's not as, it's not as simple as saying, you'll figure it out, Johnny. Johnny wants to know right now. So to figure out, like, even if I can't tell Johnny his life path and purpose, I can, I can give Johnny some access to some resources that are going to help scratch that itch and answer some of those questions. Yep. And this is when I always come back to looping in teachers and coaches and all the people in your child's life to, in all those little conversations to give that feedback of like, I don't know exactly how to answer your question, which happens a lot with kids that are brighter than we are in a certain area. Like, oh, you know more about this than I do. I don't know how to answer your question, but I believe that you're going to figure it out. Like I, or you can trust me to listen. So the little things like that in relationships that are so important to that existential sadness that some kids feel. Um, And, and what you're reminding me of too, is the importance of talking to kids about their brains earlier rather than later. So um, like, when do you recommend starting those conversations? Because parents are, feel so scared about, um, talking to their kids about their diagnosis or, but really I said, this is not just about their diagnosis. This is about how their brain interprets the world. So what do you recommend? Yeah. Well, to use sort of a well-worn metaphor here, right? If your kid had a chronic illness, if your kid had a peanut allergy or was type one diabetic, wouldn't you tell them as soon as they, you could, wouldn't you right. be putting them at risk? Be like, okay, I don't want to make Johnny's life different, so I'm not going to tell him he's allergic to peanuts. But every time he goes to a birthday party, he needs an EpiPen. Right. That just, it seems illogical. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's funny. One of my many jobs is that I'm a sex educator, right? And parents always talking about, like, well, how, how can I have the talk, capital T, capital right. T? I'm like, listen, it's not one talk. It is a series of conversations that you adapt as the kid gets older. Talking about something about their neurodivergence is the same thing. Like your brain works a little bit differently. You're going to be good at these things and okay at these things. And you might struggle with these things. And you may see your peers not have that same profile. Nobody's better or worse than anybody else. We just all have different brains. 
And then as they get older and they start interfacing more with school, right? Well, this is how your different brain shows up in the classroom. And then maybe with the arts, like music, theater, painting, drawing, sculpture, or, or STEM, right? You know, I, I'll tell you this, I'm 39 years old. I can't code to save my life. I work with six-year-olds who could code circles around me. Yep. I'm just sit there. I'm like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. <laughs> that all just seems beautiful. I, I can't even make the code monkey spin around in circles. I can't figure it out. You know, so, and this this idea, it's like, as a self, as someone who identifies as gifted, I use myself as an example to say, just because you have this brain doesn't mean that you're great at everything. It means that the things you're good at, you're really, really good at. But there are things you're going to be average at and things you're not going to be so good at. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The Regulation Roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the Reframing Behavior Worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, kind of light bulb moments I sometimes have with younger kids that I talk talk to about how their brain works is they assume that some of their classmates are good at everything. Yeah. And I'm like, news flash, <laughs> nobody is good at everything. Like, yes, there are some people that are aligned really well with traditional education. So they don't, you might not see them struggle. They don't look frustrated. Um, But most people, like if we could give everybody an IQ test, which we don't have the time or the resources to do, I would just be so interested in like, is anybody really all in the middle? Um, Of course, all the kids we work with have more scatter than the general population. But it's really helpful for kids to know that what you see in your peers is the tip of the iceberg, of course. You do not know all the things that they're struggling with. So let's talk a little bit more about the elephant in the room, which is mental health and the pandemic. So we were both working as child psychologists pre-pandemic and post-pandemic and during the pandemic. (laughs) And so what are the things you saw pre, during, and post, and um, yeah, what lessons can you share with us? Oof. It is. It's It's been a ride, hasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm actually reflecting on something you said earlier, Emily. It was like, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to help you find the answer. I mean, you know, I love using intellectual humility as a therapeutic tool, and it's great for teachers, too. If a kid asks you, you know, who is the third Byzantine emperor, Yes, I don't know who's got that in their brain. When you model, let's look that up together. It shows you that it's okay to not to know stuff. Mm -hmm. I had to lean on that technique a lot during the pandemic because, you know, we have this invisible, deadly, pervasive thing that's drastically changed our way of living overnight. And kids are like, I want to know when it's over. I want to know how to stop it. I want to know when it's going to go away or why it happened. And I... I had to sit there and say, I don't know any of those answers. But yeah. if there's a good news is that nobody does. We are literally mm-hmm. the 8 billion of us on planet Earth. We're all unified in trying to figure that out together. And there was something kind of beautiful about that. But it was sort of shat overwhelmed by this chaotic tidal wave of anxiety and dread and fear. You know, and, you know, I think therapy is so much a place to process those unanswerable feelings, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I can't tell you how many people come up to me when they find out what I do for a living. I go, I'd be a great therapist. I give great advice. I'm like, oh, do you now? Great. <laughs> you should have a blog, I guess. I don't know. But like therapy is not really about giving advice. It's about it's sitting with sitting with feelings and holding space, reflecting. And if an answer comes from that, stupendous. But, you know, I mean – Another thing to get very meta about the therapy process is like, 
this is a time where if I could give you advice, I would, but I don't know. All we can do is take the information we have and make the best choices we can with it. And, you know, as in the pandemic, as in life, you know, I mean, we have, we're never going to have all the information, you know, sometimes it really is about taking the leap. Mm -hmm. Did you see any mental health benefits for our neurodivergent kids in the pan in quarantine? It was, I mean, mostly bad, but it was mostly bad, but (laughs) for my, for my socially anxious kids, who mm-hmm. had a lot of trouble interfacing with school, all mm-hmm. of a sudden getting to learn from their bedrooms or kitchen tables lowered that threshold so far that all of a sudden they had more bandwidth to talk about mm-hmm. school and engage in school. And I was getting emails from teachers being like, oh my gosh, I never knew that Becky could talk like that or learn like that. I'm like, right, because she's not deflecting 80% of her energy to keep her breathing under control. Awfully hard to do math. When you're like thinking any minute now, one of your peers is going to scream at you. So for a lot of those kids, it was helpful. And I think if we zoom out a little bit, mm-hmm. the best thing about it is that it normalized telehealth and different kinds of education. You know, yes. I mean, I can see kids from all over the country now. And that's amazing to me because mm-hmm. you know, if you have kids who are in mental health deserts, and there are many throughout the country, all they have to do is have an internet connection and they can come see me. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then we're seeing kids who weren't built for, you know, for traditional education models, right? The pandemic sort of gave them permission to look around and say like, okay, well, maybe I'm a better fit for hybrid school. Maybe I'm a better fit for mm-hmm. an online schooling model. Maybe I'm a better fit for unschooling, you know, mm-hmm. and given the high level of importance the gifted brain places on education and that kind of learning you know, you see a secondary mental health benefit for that stuff. Because all of a sudden we've got a kid, I'm thinking one particular client of mine, who went from getting kicked out of school three or four times a week to doing some homeschool lessons right through, you know, Life of Fred and um, Khan Academy. And that sort of evolved into him doing, you know, a hybrid program for gifted learners, you know, and he's happier he doesn't have yeah. to worry about being triggered by his classmates because if he gets upset, he can just turn his camera off, right? And yeah. in his bedroom, and that's where his snacks are, and he's feeling great. And that's, you know, I mean, there is a major mental health benefit for that, not to mention the fact that because he's not getting kicked out of class four times a week, he's actually there and learning. So it really is kind of a win-win, right? Who's to learn if you're not in the room, you know? Yeah. So I, I agree. I think that pandemic learning kind of highlighted just neurodiversity in general, like how all of our kids, all of our brains do learn differently. Yes, we do have to have some sort of organized structure to education. But again, there are going to be kids on the tail ends of the bell curve. And um, if school is, if it feels so resistant, like if it just feels out of alignment with your kid, I think there's some normalizing that came out of it and um, some ability to think twice about maybe trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. So let's talk about that a little more in terms of the asynchronous brain, you know? Um, Well, first of all, describe what twice exceptional is for everyone. Um, Let's, let's talk more about what that means because I, I, you know, when I think about asynchronous profiles, that's kind of the, the ultimate asynchronous profile, but there are plenty of kids that don't have that, maybe don't identify with that um, label that also feel like their profile is asynchronous and doesn't really fit into school. But tell me more about what twice exceptional is. Yeah. So twice exceptional is a gifted brain with a, at least one other divergence. So that can be ADHD like me. It can be OCD. It can be autism. It can be specific learning disabilities like dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, apraxia, you know, all things that sound vaguely Latin. You know, I took Latin. (laughs) I remember what the words mean. And it's the sort of thing where I bring these things up in meetings. I'm like, oh, so this is a classic twice exceptional profile. This is what that means. And I cannot tell you how often adults from across the table will be like, well, a kid can't be 
gifted and dyslexic. It's like, can't they though? Because I can give you many yep. examples. Richard Branson, you know, I mean, like we can we can talk about this. And and it's the sort of thing, because there's this prevailing notion that if you're gifted, you're good at everything and good at all of those things forever. And that's not true. That's not how the brain develops, right? I mean, so and you know, so you get, and I'm sure your case will looks like mine, where it's like, I don't just get gifted kids. I get gifted kids. It's like, all right, it's alphabet so ADHD, OCD, J GAD, um, you know, specific learning disability with writing. Also, you know, they have, you know, fine motor delays, and it's like, okay, lots of letters, lots of letters here. Right? Because the more divergent you are, the more likely you are to have second or third or fourth or fifth divergences. And then it can make meeting the needs of that kid really challenging. Because how do you teach somebody who has the intellectual capacity of a college student if they're in elementary school, but by the way, mm -hmm. they have the social skills of a kindergartner and the emotional regulation skills of a four-year-old? Go ahead. Teach that kid. Yep. Go ahead. Right? Just do yep. it. Right? Yep. And that's like <laughs> totally, totally my caseload, right? Like those are the kids I love so much. Um, and I, I mean, I think you nailed that. And for a lot of um, parents are like, yeah, exactly. So I get this question a lot of how can my gifted kid not regulate themselves? Or how can my gifted kid not be able to follow three-step directions? And it's because following three-step directions really has nothing to do with your intelligence. Exactly. Oh, I love it. Right. So following three-step directions, of course, has to do with your executive functioning skills, which yes, we, you know, kind of measure that on IQ tests with memory and processing speed, but like the core of intelligence is really novel problem solving. So your kid can novel problem solve all day. Right. It's going to be like even better if they're interested in it. And then I always get this, this um, example of like, why can they hyper-focus on this, but then they can't focus on this? So let's talk a little bit more about the all the kind of age differences. Like anybody who's followed me knows that I, I talk in developmental age, not chronological age, for these reasons. So... In terms of mental wellness and nurturing mental health, I think that we, in, you know, we have to start earlier than we think, just like with the sex talk, just like with talking about brains. Because if you, if you're talking to a 16 year old about sex, like the ship maybe has sailed, meaning that they have Googled something already or talked to their friend, trust me. And if you wait to talk to your teenager about mental wellness, this is this was true even in the 90s, but it is so, so true now because of the internet. So when do you recommend starting to talk to kids about anxiety and sadness and loneliness? Um, and of course, this is not a chronological age answer. This is like a, when do you know a kid is ready? to understand those mental wellness terms? You know, I think that this is where that big three language can be helpful again, because we want to normalize the experience of emotions. Right? I mean, I think that, you know, I go to a lot of schools as part of my job, and there's always the one teacher who's got the sign on the door, good vibes only, right? You're responsible <laughs> for the energy you bring into this room. It's like, well, yeah, and also you're allowed to have bad days. Like, I mean, this is the thing, we... we we've sort of set up these systems for our kids to not be allowed to have bad days. You know, Johnny was in a bad mood today. Well, gosh, I was in a bad mood today too. No one yelled at me. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's sort of backwards um, because we're also overwhelmed and it's so hard to make the space in the classroom or in the therapy room or the soccer field or the girl scout meeting for a kid who's having a tough time. But we, if when we normalize that as part of the broader human experience, it gives our kids permission to feel all the things. Mm -hmm. Now you're spending energy feeling the feeling and processing the feeling rather than trying to keep that feeling away at all costs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because then it's like, hey, I'm having a tough time. Oh, by saying that, I've released it into the universe rather than like spending all day being like, look how fine I am. My eyes twitching, but I, it always does that. I don't even have bananas, right? I mean, like, yeah. And I think everyone in our generation as parents these days 
is, is sometimes doing that and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm acting fine and I am not fine because we were not taught this stuff. Oh God. So we are trying to teach things that we are learning. We are literally building the plane as we fly it, but we've just got to be open and honest about our own mental health, right? Well, have you seen this thing, this invisible perfectionism stuff? Oh, oh my God. Tell me more. So it's, so I was just doing a talk on this the other day. Um, and invisible perfectionism is this idea that we, w- for the last three and a half years, we've been waking up, you know, on a scale of one to a hundred. If meltdown is at a hundred, we wake up at a 93, right? Because life is hard and we have kids and there's a pandemic and the earth may be dying, right? And there's all these things that are going on. And so you say to yourself, okay, I have to get my children fed and clothed and out the door if I can get them out the door and do my job and be a good partner and be a good friend and a good child and, 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 and you're like, I can do all of those things as long as everything goes perfectly. As long as everything goes the way it is supposed to go, I'm fine. But how often do things go the way we think they're going to go? Right. I mean, they like never. Like never. <laughs> so we're setting ourselves up to have more meltdowns because we've overscheduled, overcommitted and overstressed ourselves. So to my parents out there, right? Like, if, if you are nodding your head vigorously as you hear us say this, I mean, there's a term for it, invisible perfectionism. This idea that I can only handle this impossible load as long as everything goes perfectly. The first thing you can do is release yourself from that. And I tell my kids, my clients about this all the time too. You know, in high school, I was that kid who like would quadruple book himself. Like, oh, on Tuesday, I have a student council meeting, student newspaper meeting, theater rehearsal. And I have to do this other club that I was supposed to do. And I would just be sprinting back and forth through my high school. And it's like, and nobody ever said, hey, Matt, have you thought about maybe not doing that? (laughs) Right? It's madness. So maybe we would all do a little bit better if we were able to just have these conversations about what we can commit to, when we can commit to it, and Mm -hmm. how much energy we can commit to doing that. things. Because at the end of the day we're really sort of on the hamster wheel of doom, right? We're just running, 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 running Mm -hmm. and wearing ourselves out, which is lowering our resilience and able our ability to deal with the curveballs life is inevitably going to throw us. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here, this is a podcast for another day, but I'm sitting here wondering if this is an American problem. So all my people in the UK and Australia and in Canada, I know you're out there somewhere comment when you listen to this because i just wonder if the there is this american drive that more is better of course we all know this culturally but um i think that when you're raising a neurodivergent kid that goes out the window because you quickly learn that the if you do more everyone is literally emotionally falling apart and it's not possible to do more. So you, you reach your limits as a family faster and earlier. Um, and I think it's, you know, many people listening will be like, yep. So I can't keep up with all this because my, like my kid literally like won't get in the car. So there's, this isn't worth it. You, you get to those moments of this isn't worth it a lot faster. And so with young children, that's what I'm, I'm, we're talking about with the mental wellness. Like that's what, dysregulation, mental unwellness looks like in a young child is that dysregulation, that inability to, um, you know, grow and learn. And my line in the sand is always, is this child happy? Like, are they, are they enjoying themselves? Or have they like gone to school and left it all on the, you know, figurative field of school, and then they come home and they've got nothing left in the tank. So maybe we just hang out and connect and play. And that is what the pandemic did for me as a parent and as a therapist is like this whole working parenting homeschooling thing, like (laughs) that doesn't compute mathematically in my parent brain. So, um, that was that, yeah, that was my, my mental wellness boundary at that point. Like I've just got to do less, like less is enough. Less is enough, you know? And you know, my, one of my colleagues, uh, when I used to work at a gifted school, she used to call it Maslow parenting. She's like, my children will have food in their bellies, relatively clean clothes on their bodies and a roof over their head. Anything else we do is gravy. You know, and yep. I was like, you know what? That's not a bad way to think about this because really gifted kids and neurodivergent kids can be 
black holes. Right? They can be, I need more. I'm consuming data and information and content and activities. And you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to feed the beast. But the way to step off that hamster wheel is to share space and time. Mm-hmm. You sit there and do those things with your child. Right. I mean, watch, watch them play Minecraft. You know, I mean, watch them sit there and read a book together. You know, I mean, it's those sort of things that it's so easy to forget that gifted kids are kids, right? We treat them like little adults, like little senators. And it's just like, hold on a second, right? I mean, this is a thing that, you know, parents will say to me like, well, you know, they have to go from school to ballet to karate to Latin class. And then they have to do their homework. I'm like, where's the fun? Where's the goof off? Where's the Minecraft? Where's the, you know, I mean, to date ourselves, Dr. Emily, AOL instant messenger time, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, parents like, well, they don't have time for that. They have to dot, 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 dot. It's like, if we don't have kids time to be kids, they grow up to be adults who don't know how to regulate. They don't know how to sit in Right. Right. And scheduling time for something that doesn't feel like you're accomplishing something, like you're checking a box, like you're adding to the resume is, I mean, it's a very American thing, right? It's like, we have to always be doing, but maybe we would all be feeling and doing a lot better if we understand that doing nothing is actually doing something, right? You know, I, I like to say, like, there's a difference between not using your phone and charging your phone, right? I mean, yes. like, you know, yes. metaphors. <laughs> yes, rest is an action. It's an action. It's a gift you yeah. give yourself and it costs nothing, unlike that $3,000 Minecraft camp that your kid's been begging for for the last four months, right? You know I mean? Rest is free and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com slash tracker to get started. So I have to ask this obvious question that I get asked a lot. So what do parents do when they feel like their child's interest is mind-numbing to them? (laughs) So it dysregulates the parent, and they know that it's helpful to spend time with their child and to lean into those interests, but... I know you have limits, parents. I know, because I have them too. So, Dr. Matt, what do you recommend? Moving through interest, interest-based learning and interest-based engagement is the key to both education and parenting, right? So, you know, my kids, we I don't think I would have survived the pandemic without Coco Melon. Do you know Coco Melon? I do. Um, but my kids are too old. I don't I haven't watched it. It it haunts my dreams. Um, <laughs> and I had to watch a lot of Coco Melon. But and I found the show utterly grating. But then I realized one day that all of the songs they're si- they're singing on the show are basically public domain songs. So then then we were able to use like Spotify and YouTube to get other versions of those songs that they sing on Coco Melon. That then we could have dance parties to or play musical instruments to, you know. And so if your kid is obsessed with dinosaurs and you're like, dinosaurs are the worst thing that's ever lived. But maybe you could, if you're a writer, maybe you could write stories about dinosaurs with your kid. If you're an artist, paint pictures or do clay sculptures, you know, because then it's about, it's a medium you're comfortable with. And the content is almost secondary. You know, I mean, when I, when I talk to schools about how to do interest-based learning, I was like, well, how do I, how do I teach a kid science if all they want to talk about is the Titanic? I'm like, well, okay, the Titanic was a boat. Boats float. How do boats float? You know, the Titanic had an engine. How do engines work? You know, the Titanic had these steam stacks. What is steam? Right? I was like, those are three good science lessons right there, and that's just me kicking around off the top of my head. 
we could make an iceberg, right? We could, well, I can make more Titanic references, but, we're, you know, let, let's, I will try and pull myself out of that nosedive. Um, but the idea here, right, is that if your kid's interest is nails on a chalkboard to you, can you find a way to put your skills through that interest? If you're a baker, let's make dinosaur cupcakes. We can figure that out, right? I mean, like, you know, fondant can do anything, right? But it's the idea of there doesn't have to be one way to do X, whatever that X is, you know? And if we're creative and we think what's the intersection between our interests and skills and our kids' interests and skills, that Venn diagram is a lot bigger than you think it is. And somewhere in there is the way that you can share that space. I love that so much. And I really love Venn diagrams. Oh my gosh, right? I mean, they're just the best. <laughs> but what you're describing is co-regulation with big kids. Yes. So when we, um, we all are like getting on board as a culture about co-regulation, you know, how do we quote unquote rock the baby? You know, we know how to rock our baby. We, we are instinctively drawn to co-regulate you know, basically kids under two. We know how to bounce kids. We know how to sing to kids. Our voice just like does this weird high pitch thing when we see kids. Like, I don't know why it happens, but it's just in wiring. But as kids get older, their interests or their behavior or their whatever, their volume can become annoying because we have our own sensory needs, right? So what you're describing is how do we co-regulate with big kids? So I love this intersection of their interest and our interest or their skills and our interest or their interest and our skills. Like we really do probably have to be the one that flexes because we have a fully developed brain. So if we take their interest and match our skills, you're absolutely right. That's where the relationship can just be fostered in a way that's um, that just feels better for both kid and parent. And as we know, when we are doing better in a mental health standpoint, our kid is doing better. So that takes me into talking through this, this loneliness question. Like that's the counter to the loneliness. So our neurodivergent kids are at risk for more loneliness. Cause if you think about it, they're so individualized, the chances of finding someone like them is lower. So, um, Tell me more about, you know, what you see in related to mental health, the neurodivergent kids related to that sadness or loneliness and what can parents look for? Well, I think it, it, it starts with that asynchrony, right? So, you know, my mentor, Jean Peterson, she always used to say every gifted kid is five kids, right? Teachers out there who are like, your colleagues like, you teach the gifted kids how easy it is. You only have eight of them. You have 40. You are 40 kids in that room, Right. Because of the asynchrony spread. But it means that if you are going to push back against loneliness for your child, it means you're going to have to intervene in many different spheres and many different ages of functioning. So one of the kids I work with, you know, they're 17. Their best friend is a 45-year-old retired science teacher. They hang out at the coffee shop. They play chess. They talk about science. And people are like, that's so weird. I'm like, but is it? You know? It, right. It, it's only weird because it's maybe, un, you know, uncommon. Right. You know, that's it. That's it. You know, it's, it's not, it's not harmful. You know I mean? You know, people were vetted, right. We can make sure that everybody's safe, but like, you know, I can think of one of the kids I work with, um, you know, they are in middle school taking high school classes. So we're giving them intellectual peers there. Check. Socially, they're relatively age-ish. So they've got some friends from like community uh, community activities like Boy Scouts, right? That's, that's where they meet a lot of their same age peers from the town. Um, in terms of their interests, they're a big LARPer, the live action role play, right? For, for those of you who don't, don't know. So their LARPing community is everybody from eight-year-olds to 65-year-olds, right? I mean, it's a big community and they have cookouts and they have meetups and they all go bowling sometimes in, in costume, God bless them. You know, that's just, I, I, I was like, can you invite me sometime? I just want to watch, um, you know, but this is a thing where we've got four different areas of need for this kid, intellectual, social, interest-based and emotional. And we're giving this kid four different groups. So 
you know, and you're thinking there, but like, well, but my neurotypical kid does all that in school. Right. Because school is built to give neurotypical kids all of that in one place. The more divergent you are, the more you're going to have to think outside the box and tap into outside resources. I say this, the best thing that ever happened to me is my parents sent me to CTY, the Center for Talented Youth Camp, when I was in sixth grade. It was the first time in my life where I went to a place where I didn't have to pretend I was somebody I wasn't. Right? I got there and I said a smart thing. And other, this kid was like, oh, well, what about this other smart thing? I'm like, <gasps> what? Oh, my God. I'm not alone. And, yeah. and there's research that backs this up. It's like if you can give a gifted kid something meaningful to look forward to, a lot of other things get better. Because if you can look forward to three weeks of CTY every summer, or you can look forward to your monthly codathon with your STEM club, whatever that thing is, it can make things better because it twings that emotional regulation. It pushes back against existential depression. It gives kids a meaningful social group, not just you are all born around the same time. Ergo, you should be friends. Like, that's not. Like, that's not really how that works, you know. Think about being in college. Think about it being at work. Like, are all your friends exactly the same age in college? I had friends from all over the age spectrum, right? And it. Well, I don't work in an. I work for myself, so I guess I'm friends with myself. But like when I worked in an office, our coworkers were all over the place, and I was friends with them, right? So we only expect peer-based friendship circles when kids are little. But we can embrace that flexibility and that, that developmental spread. You're meeting more of your kids' needs in a more meaningful way, and then they're going to be happier and do better. Yep. So what would you say to teachers who have that kid in their class who presents with five different profiles of needs and they've got this standardized curriculum? Yep right? That they're trying so hard to just check their own boxes. and But they know that the mental health of this child, the student, is a factor in engagement and in um, just continuing to be hooked into the idea of learning. You know, I feel like this is where we lose our kids and why I talk so much just to elementary kids, because we've got to get it right in elementary school. But what would you say to that teacher? I mean, the first is, you don't have to do this alone, right? I mean, to meet the needs of this kid takes a village. It's going to involve the parents. It's going to involve the school psychologist, the school counselor, and probably a professional, somebody like me or you, or, you know, the legions of us who work for, you know, the groups that support these kids. Don't feel like you can't pick up the phone and call somebody, right? This is a tricky thing. Additionally, I often say, you know, and listen, I'm not an educator, right? I, I can't do what an educator does. But I know enough about it because I have to speak that language to do my job. So the best practices in gifted education are the best practices in education full stop. So if you can look at the differentiated instruction stuff from Caroline Tomlinson, um, those are ways to integrate interest-based learning, to give kids some meaningful choice, and to create that relationship. Because really, it's like relationships before rigor. Right. That's what it boils down to. You know, a kid will run through a wall for us if they believe that we have their best interest in heart. But it, you can have the best curriculum in the world. But if that kid doesn't see you as a person, they're going to sit there and, and, you know, and go like a cat on the edge of a table. Like, dip, 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 bling. And so it's about starting with creating classroom environment. It's about creating community. It's about building relationships. You know, and that's one of the things that when I think about all the wonderful teachers I've gotten to meet in my travels, they look different, act different, have different training, different schools, all that stuff. But the one thing they have in common is they put relationships before rigor and interest before instruction. If you can do those two things, you can educate anybody on this planet, right? No matter what profile walks through your door. And the coolest thing is, is that it is, it's organic to who we are, right? Yeah. You know, if, if we were getting a cup of coffee, Emily, I wouldn't be like, I've decided we're going to talk about the Peloponnesian War, right? I'd be like, bye. Yeah. Um, I'm going <laughs> to, I want to call on my watch phone and be like, Emily, what would you like to talk about? And you would tell me a thing you want to talk about. 
And we would engage in that conversation and probably have a better coffee than we would randomly reaching into a bucket of things like, ah, the seat says we have to talk about the Battle of Ticonderoga. Uh, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-numbing. Let's talk about how do we put our interests through something like that. And you just described, you know, my whole passion for talking about talking to teachers about neurodivergent learning, but also the fact that every classroom is already a neurodiverse classroom because we are a neurodiverse population. And what works for these kids works for everyone. We just have to somehow figure out how to balance the flexibility with the standardized curriculum that we've got. Um, And then, of course, we also will be working on long-term goals of flexing that curriculum at some point in the future. I just want to, yeah, I want to thank you so much for joining me. And so we could merge these ideas for everyone to listen to. Um, Where can people find um, out more about you to keep learning from you? Um, Well, so uh, we have a really fun Facebook community, um, you know, facebook.com slash Dr. Matt Zakreski. Um, and then my website for my practice, uh, which is where you can do therapy or consultation or hire me to come talk at your school, uh, is at theneurodiversitycollective.com. I, I've reached the point where now if you punch my name into Google, I'm the whole first page of Google, which like you've you've made when it. When did that happen? Score. Who am I? Right? <laughs> like I it's it's I mean it's how it helps that I have a unique name. Right? There aren't a lot of people with my name out there, but like that just blows my mind. Um, but you know, there's nothing more I like than connecting with people who are also on this journey, you know, and I really believe that we're all on the same team here. I mean, I learned from you in this conversation, Emily, and I hope I offered something to you in return. Right. And, you know, I think that's why we make a great team, you know, but it's, it really is. If you work with these kids as a parent, as a coach, as a mental health professional, as an educator, as an administrator, you're on my team, you're on our team. Right. So we're, you know, whatever resources and skills we have, you know, I, we share them readily because we want our kids to do better. That's why we, that's why we do these. That's why we do right? this. So. Yep. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. This was great. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.